Pablo, and welcome to this month's edition of the Classic Rock Podcast. Now, coming up on the show today, we'll round up, of course, all of the latest news. We'll have the press reviews, and as Nick Mason prepares to accept his award at the Prog Awards this September, as this year's Prog God, we're going to be hearing from him, Roger Waters, and Sid Barrett from way back in the 60s, in the very early days of Pink Floyd, as they got to set out exactly what was the Pink Floyd Experience. And guess who's back as well this September with a new album? It is indeed Status Quo. They're back looking refreshed and raring to go with a great new album called Backbone. We'll have the words from Rossi and the band, and we'll hear a track or two maybe if we've got time as well. But to start, it is a special month, of course, isn't it, as we celebrate 50 years of what is the greatest music festival ever. It is, of course, Woodstock. So I thought we should start our own little tribute today. And where better than by opening the show with the very first act that appeared on the Woodstock bill. And that was Richard Pierce Havens, otherwise known, of course, as Richie Havens. So here it is then. This is the moment that Woodstock got underway. And do remember, of course, this was 1969. There was no Dobley back then, or certainly not on any of the recordings that uh, we've got. So the sound quality isn't the greatest, but just enjoy it for what it is. History being made. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the most beautiful men in the whole world. Let's welcome Mr. Richie Havens. Five Dino's guitar. Hello. Groovy, groovy, groovy. How are you? How are you in the back? Can you hear? Groovy, groovy. <clears throat> okay. Um, wow. It's really beautiful to see so many people together. I know it might be a tiny bit uncomfortable, but token sleeping. Die blue. 
now the sun that comes up and lights up the day. And when he gets tired, Lord goes on down his way to the east and to the west. He meets God every day. Lord, look at me here. abrupt ending there to Richie Havens as he got Woodstock underway 50 years ago. Now, what about those that were there, the fans? What was it really like to have experienced Woodstock? And 50 years on, what do they remember and how does it rank in their life's experiences? One second I'm in my mother's uterus, the next I'm on stage and John Fogarty is snipping my umbilical cord with a guitar pick while strumming the opening bit from Bad Moon Rising. Woodstock was a wild time. I was just 18 when I went to Woodstock in 1969, and it was the best three days of my life. There were at least 200,000 people there. Every one of those people had someone on their shoulders. That made it around 400,000. 
I hitchhiked 16 hours just to be there. I mean, the lineup had Carlos Santana, The Grateful Dead, a beached whale that had washed up on stage. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Who, a decent The Who cover band. Janis Joplin, the man with the world's longest fingernails, and a traveling performer named The Incredible Birthing Woman who gave birth to me live on stage. It was incredible. The performance I remember the most was probably Carlos Santana. He played a few songs, then stopped abruptly and dropped his guitar. After a quick pause, he whispered, it's climb time, and started climbing climbing up the scaffolding. No one could get him to climb down. He's still up there. Honestly, you could do anything at Woodstock. Nothing was too taboo. You could have sex in a river like a fish would. First I'd get naked like a fish, then I'd go in the river to have sex like a fish. I had sex like a fish, then swam up river to spawn. That was Woodstock. You could murder at Woodstock, so long as you went in the designated murder tent. I was still in utero during the first two days of Woodstock, but by the beginning of the third day, I'd finally been born. So I got to see Jimi Hendrix close out the festival. At the time, I didn't know Woodstock would change the world forever. Really, that was the first music festival. It was where Janis Joplin discovered the polio vaccine and where Carlos Santana climbed the scaffolding and never came down. I had sex like a fish at Woodstock and had a great time. Well, there you go. Hands up who's sorry they weren't around to experience that. <laughs> uh, Billboard did a top 12 best performances at Woodstock, and this is how they ranked it. At number 12, Mountain, with the legendary Leslie West, not only the best guitar player they said that was there, uh, but also that incredible voice. Uh, ten years after, at number 11, Credence Clearwater Revival, uh, number 10. Uh, Shanana at number 9. These were a bunch of Columbia University students dressed up performing bizarre choreography. Uh, Richie Havens at number 8, the first man on stage, as we said. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, they had at number 7. Uh, they came on at 3.30 a.m. on Monday morning with Stephen Stills' opening line, we're scared shitless. Uh, next was Country Joe McDonald at number six. Joe Cocker at number five. He opened the Sunday show at four. The Who. Now, Roger Daltrey actually recently said that Woodstock was the worst concert that they had ever performed. Jimi Hendrix at number three, of course, who closed the show on Monday morning. Sly and the Family Stone at number two. And according to Billboard and a lot of other people, actually, the more you dig into looking back at the reviews, the best performer at uh, Woodstock was Carlos Santana. Now, what about some reaction from some of those that actually played at the event in the hours and days after Woodstock was completed? Now, of course, this is long before MTV or 24-hour news channels or anything like that. Uh, but here was a couple of hobos who dropped into a TV studio the night after performing at 4 a.m. in the morning, and they offered uh, a few words on what it was like. We have two people who just happened to be passing through the studio uh, looking for a, a payphone that works in New York, and uh, they are Stephen Stills and David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Very well at the festival. Did it feel good? At four o'clock in the morning, 
Let's have a look at some of the stories that have made headlines over the last one, two or three weeks. Now, Neil Young has announced a new album with Crazy Horse, though, this time. It's his first in seven years. They got back together at the back end of last year, and they've got Nils Lofgren on board now, taking over from uh, Frank San Pedro, who declared just before the project, I'm 70 years of age and I'm retired. Great news for fans of Leonard Skinner. Gary Rossington, the only original member of the band still around these days, he is to make a full recovery from heart surgery, which was uh, done to repair what was said to be a leaking valve. He's already back in the saddle. And uh, those of you who saw the recent European tour, well, they drew some fantastic reviews and potential does remain that they may return to Europe for some more dates in 2020. Now, Joe Elliott, everybody's favourite Yorkshireman, he has somehow found the time to complete a new album with the down and outs. It's called How We Roll, and it will be out on October the 11th. 11 new songs and a cover version of the Tube song, White Punks on Dope. He does have a habit, doesn't he, uh, Joe Elliott? They did it with Yeah. Whenever they do a cover version of a song, it's always a very, very good choice, isn't it? And that is no exception. Great song by the Tubes from in the uh, early 1980s. This is how we roll. Uh, the title track of that album is already available to stream, so if you haven't listened to it, do go and give it a listen. It is really good. And meanwhile, Def Leppard are continuing to be extremely well-received for their residency in Las Vegas after their sellout trek around Canada, and they really are on top of their game. If you uh, check out their Facebook page, you'll see lots of updates from the road, including a really good behind-the-scenes look at the stage set in Vegas, which looks sensational, actually. And it's a two-hour show, and the crowds are lapping up every minute. Now, the life of Chuck Berry, who died back in 2017, is to be the subject of a new documentary with contributions from Paul McCartney, Alice Cooper, Joe Berry, to name just a few. Of more interest will be the first ever interview with Chuck Berry's widow, who was married to him for, what, 68 years, also involved 
are his children and extended family as well. It'll be released during Nashville's Film Festival this October, which celebrates its 50th anniversary. It does sound, doesn't it, like one of those that you need to see. Now, Styx will return to the studio and absolutely make another album. That is according to Ricky Phillips. Uh, they won't remember 14 years between 2003 and 2017 without a release, so uh, don't hold your breath. Makes sort of Boston look very prolific, doesn't it? Bit of touring news, good news for fans of the Beach Boys, because Brian Wilson has announced that he will be returning to the road. Foreigner are going to be doing a 20-day Vegas residency. That's next year. Journey are extending their run at Caesars Palace later this year. And also returning to the USA will be Mott the Hoople. They had a short run earlier this year. They are returning for a month's worth of dates in October. A little bit more on this Kinks reunion tour, which has been uh, in the offing for, what, half a decade or so. Dave Davis of the Kinks has confirmed the band have been working on new material. Wait for it. For two years. We keep going back, he said, and listening to a lot of the old stuff. Uh, Some of it was very good. Some of it needs a little bit more work. But there's also a lot of new stuff as well. The songs are all in demo form at the moment. As for playing live, he said, I really don't know. I'm not sure I think it's possible, but it would be fun, wouldn't it? Now, let's start our press review this month for a change with uh, Prog Magazine. Now, they revealed that Nick Mason will be awarded the honour of being the 2019 Prog God at this September's Prog Awards, joining an elite band of previous recipients like Steve Howe, Carl Palmer, Ian Anderson and Peter Gabriel. He said, I'm all in favour of drummers getting recognition, especially when it's me. He was involved, of course, in the founding of Pink Floyd back in, what, 1965, along with the rest of that uh, trinity, Barrett, Waters and Wright. Worth remembering, too, that he was the only member of Pink Floyd to appear on all 15 studio albums. Now, what was it like at the very beginning, before they'd released a record in 1967? Well, this interview took place somewhere between 66, 67. And joining Nick Mason here, Roger Waters and Sid Barrett. And here they were describing just what it was all about and what it was like to experience the Pink Floyd. In a frenetic haze of sound and sight, a new concept of music has begun to penetrate the senses of Britain's already hopped up beat fans. Some call it free sound. Others prefer to include it in the psychedelic wave of isms already circulating around the Western Hemisphere. But this music, here and now, is that of the Pink Floyd, a group of four young musicians, a light man, and an array of equipment sadistically designed to shatter the strongest nerves. The Pink Floyd are new on the London scene. They've stupefied audiences at all-night raves, in church halls, at the Albert Hall, and on various tours in Britain. They've yet to make their debut on records. But perhaps the Pink Floyd themselves are most qualified to tell you what it's all about. We didn't start out trying to get anything new, you know, we just... It, it entirely happened. We originally started virtually as a, an R&B group. Yeah. Sometimes 
we just sort of let loose a bit and started hitting the guitar a bit harder and not worrying quite so much about the chords. It stopped being sort of third-rate academic rock, you know. It started being sort of intuitive groove, really. It's free form. In sort of terms of construction, it's almost like jazz, where you start off with a riff and then you improvise on this, except to some extent, and it's not like jazz music because some... Um, we don't want to be pop stars, we don't want to be jazz yeah, music. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we play for people to dance to. They don't seem to dance much now. But that's the initial idea. So we play loudly and we're playing with electric guitars. So, uh, I mean, we're, we're utilising all the volume and all the effects you can get. But now, in fact, we're trying to develop this by using the light. Yes, of course. Right. But the thing about the jazz thing is that we don't have this great musician thing, you know. We don't, uh, we don't really look upon ourselves as musicians as such, you know, period. Reading the dots and mm. all that stuff. How important is the visual aspect of the production? Very, very, very important. important. It's quite a revelation to have people operating something like lights while you're playing as a direct stimulus to what you're playing. It's rather like audience reaction, except it's um, sort of on a higher level. You know, you can respond to it, and then the lights will respond back. There are various oh. sorts of lights. There's simply flashing spotlights that are worked off a sort of control board, rather like a piano, so that they can be used very rhythmically. Oh. And then there are a sort of effect lights that are um, usually coloured slides or wet slides, which are lights with some sort of liquids on them so that you get some movement or they might be actual movies such in which case um, as they have their own set speed and, se and sequence that, that can't be altered by the operators it, this changes this uh, formation to some extent because we tend immediately to play to that mm. what happens at a performance, what happens with your audience? What's the feel you get? Well, if we get very excited, and we get very excited when we're playing very well, then the audience gets very excited as well, you know. Do they dance? They may dance. It depends upon the sort of number and what's happening. Yeah, and anyway, you, you hardly ever get the sort of dancing right from the beginning that you yeah. get just as a response to the rhythm. Usually people stand there, and if they sort of work themselves into some sort of hysteria while they're there, Yes, they the dancing takes the, the form of a front. frenzy, which is very good. They don't all stand in a line and do the medicine. The audience just tend to be standing there, and just one or two people maybe will suddenly flip out and rush forward <laughs> and start yeah. leaping up and down, you know. Yeah. Freak out, I think. <laughs> it's, probably the word I think you know, it's an excellent thing, because this is what dancing is. This is really what dancing is. Is this then the music destined to replace the Beatles? Are the melodic harmonies, poetic lyrics, and soulful rhythms of today to be swept into the archives, totally undermined by a psychotic sweep of sound and vision such as this, displayed by the Pink Floyd?
Large pockets of enthusiasts from all over the country are determined that it shall, despite the powerful opposition of the majority of leading disc jockeys. But the most enthusiastic fans of all, quite fittingly, are the Pink Floyd's managers. The amazing sights and sounds of the Pink Floyd, the appetite for whom's music, it seems, never seems to waver, judging certainly by the success of Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets. Now, let us get on with more from the Press Review and stay with Brog as we do, because we need to catch up with what's happening in the life of Rick. Rick Wakeman, of course, the uh, column which is as amusing as ever. He's out of bitty 18 months, he said, so he's decided to do go for a checkup and uh, get his fitness routine sussed out. So he went to the doctors, they asked him to touch his toes, and he said, I couldn't even see my knees. Uh, he is apparently so overweight, unfit, eats at the wrong times, doesn't get enough sleep, and has an ingrown toenail. All sounds very awful, doesn't it? So the health regime has clicked in, he said. Uh, the bike tyres have been pumped up, and he's actually walking more because the car has been parked 10 more metres away from the house. We look forward to further fitness updates from Rick Wakeman. Classic Rock magazine had Led Zeppelin front cover. It was a 50th anniversary special of Led Zepp 2. It was, as they said, a game changer, kicking Abbey Road off the number one spot in the US and stopping the Rolling Stones' Let It Bleed from also getting to number one. So let's head back. 1969, the year, of course, of Woodstock, Altamont, Charles Manson and Led Zeppelin too. Plenty of interesting stories around this time. The equally legendary manager Peter Grant spotted a venue manager selling counterfeit tickets at the back door of the venue. Now you don't need too much imagination to know what happened next. Uh, Anne and Nancy Wilson were around as kids, teenagers. Uh, they were describing how seeing Led Zepp live awoke feelings amongst the females in the audience that hadn't been tapped before. And it just goes on and on and it gets even more outrageous. John Bonham dressing up as a waiter and uh, serving up Jimmy Page to a room full of girls on a room service trolley. Oh, to have been there. And, of course, let's not forget the groupies. Miss Pamela, Miss Murphy, the Butter Queen, Little Rock Connie from Arkansas. These characters were, were famous in their own right. The Butter Queen, in particular, Barbara Cope, her real name. As for what she used the butter for, well, she once said, uh, those who know, know. Those who don't, wish they did. Classic, isn't it? Uh, she does get a mention as well, actually, in her Stones song, Rip This Joint, with the line, down to New Orleans with the Dixie Dean, cross to Dallas, Texas with the Butter Queen. Lots of excess then and debauchery continued right the way throughout the recording of, the release of, and the tour of Led Zeppelin II. And, of course, this was the year of the very famous... Red Snapper incident, or the Mud Shark incident, as some know. And if you don't know anything about this, uh, then all I can say is I'm not going to tell you. Go look it up on Google. And look out as well in this issue for a big interview with one of our favourites, Sammy Hagar, who has just released his 27th album, uh, The Space Between, which is, if you've not heard it, 
very good indeed. And considering the amount of tequila and rum that he's done throughout his life, plus the general rock and roll lifestyle, at 71 years of age, it is hard to believe that Sammy Hagar, 71 years of age, he looks miraculously good. All bases covered here as well. His early career, his solo albums, Montrose, Van Halen, everything after. And obviously, obviously, it includes David Lee Roth and that infamous tour. Now, you might remember in a previous episode of the Classic Rock Podcast, we did actually dig up some of the old interviews of the time. So if you've not heard them, go back and have a listen. Uh, because he talks about it now and he says, yeah, it was very much overplayed in the media. Dave and I don't hate each other. We saw each other. We'd hug. We'd have a drink. Hmm. Seriously? Which is the complete opposite to the interviews of the time. Now, how long will he continue? He said, I'll know when I'm not good enough. And when that happens, I'll quit. No goodbye tour. Well, good job. He's got a long way to go yet. He's still sounding great. Looks great. Uh, all we want is for him to get the band back together. Not that band. Chicken Foot, of course. Uh, whilst I was looking through that edition of Classic Rock, another one dropped on the doormat. And front cover, they have the Beatles looking again at Abbey Road, main feature. So uh, one of the others of interest, Bit Biver of Saxon, still cranking out great albums. Uh, they go back to the early days of gigging around the north and northwest of England in the band Van, which, uh, when the paint fell off, as he tells the story, uh, revealed the name of the previous owner, Sid Cummings' tripe dealer. Uh, all in all, a bit of a come down for the band known at the time as Son of a Bitch before they became Saxon. They played their first gig as well at the Whiskey A Go-Go. And on this very famous night, they had, as a support, a bunch of scraggy young kids who wouldn't go on to do much. Uh, they were called Metallica, believe it or not. Meanwhile, over at uh, Mojo magazine, they're celebrating Abbey Road's 50th as well, and other stuff like uh, catching up with Noddy Holder. And of course, no interview would be complete without that question. Could he? Would he? Is it really possible? Just for Christmas, just once? Absolutely not. No chance of him getting back together with Slade. He said, we did get in the same room about 10 years ago, but we were arguing again within five minutes. They still get on well together, apparently. Now, big piece as well, with Jethro Tull and Ian Anderson. They've been around for, what, 51, 52 years now. 36 musicians, all in all, have uh, played under the banner. Makes Blackmore and Coverdale look like considerate employers, doesn't it? 60-odd million in sales from 21 studio albums. It's basically an Ian Anderson and Tull mini life story, encompassing tales of... Uh, living on soup in an attic with no heating and scrubbing toilets for a job and being summoned by Elvis for an audience. They didn't go. Tell Mr. Presley that uh, we are feeling a little bit tired and we have a show tomorrow, so we need to go to bed early. Amazing as well, the number of people that still refer to Ian Anderson as Mr. Jethro Tull. The name incidentally comes from an 18th century agriculturalist who helped invent the seed drill. And don't underestimate just how big they were in their pomp. They went out, they supported Jimi Hendrix, they played with Led Zeppelin. On the man himself, Ian Anderson, well, he's never driven, believe it or not. He uses trains and buses 
Uh, and on fashion, he said, well, my tailor is uh, Mr. Marks and Spencer. This is a fabulous tale, actually, with all sorts of unusual, whimsical tales. Uh, roadies dressed as pantomime zebras depositing fake turds, they said, on stage. But as we said, don't ever forget just how big they were. They played multiple nights at Madison Square Garden and also played the Chicago Stadium. Now, I came across a new magazine this month called Shindig, uh, which describes itself as an eclectic cornucopia teeming with obscure film, television, and every type of rock music from folk to prog. On the front cover, it's glam this month with The Sweet. Uh, there's also a really good review section. There's a piece with Ray Davis, Mike McCartney, Badfinger as well. But on to The Sweet. It said, wanted to call their first serious uh, album uh, Sweet Fuck All. Uh, in the end, it was turned down to Sweet Fanny Adams, as we know. Now, you wonder what would have happened to them as a band and as a, as a product had they done the gig with The Who at Charlton Stadium back in 1974, which they were supposed to do. The reason that they didn't is that the legendary frontman Brian Connolly, of course, was given, as they say in this article, a damn good kicking outside of a pub in Staines after he went outside and found somebody dancing on the roof of his Mercedes. Uh, Andy Scott and Steve Priest both offer insights here. Uh, over in the reviews section, four-star reviews for a book on the suite uh, titled There's No Other Band Like Us. Lurid stories of life on the road, run-ins with vice squads, but as they add, a band who on their day could blow the roof off of any venue in the land. Overall then, one of these magazines this is, which you accidentally come across, and end up being a regular buyer of. Really good magazine, this. Shindig. Uh, finally, over at Record Collector magazine, which celebrates its 40th birthday with Elvis on the front cover and inside. Joe Satriani talking about remixing and uh, re-releasing some of his early work with the squares. But of most interest, David Coverdale interviewed on non-retirement. And there were a few really interesting comments in this, such as, hopefully he said... I've got this year and next as a hard rock performer, uh, but then I'll probably look at doing something like a few nights at Ronnie Scott's in uh, a much more intimate evening with people there to listen to stories behind the songs, uh, something that a great number of artists are now beginning to do. And if you've ever been to one, I know Francis Rossi is doing one as well, uh, his has been remarkably successful. Uh, then these are a great night out. So uh, if Coverdale's doing it, then you should imagine that it will be entertaining, to say the least. <laughs> Now, this September sees the return of a British rock institution, and with it will come the critics, those who believe it's a travesty that they still want to get out there and make records, considering there's only one of the originals left. We are, of course, talking about status quo. But before you start jumping on the bandwagon, just take a little bit of time out, sit back, listen and you'll be pleasantly surprised due to the fact that Backbone is actually a pretty good album indeed. No, it isn't Pile Driver, and it isn't The Frantic Four, but this is a fresh, reinvigorated status quo for 2019. So credit where it is due, because while some bands 
are happy to go out and just play the back catalogue touring greatest hits. Rossi and Guo have taken time to come up with something completely new, and for that, they should be commended. So, here they are, talking about the new album, Backbone. quite exciting for me because I've done a couple of albums with with Quo but they were kind of covers of their old material so to do an album where um, it's all brand new stuff and it's a rock album as well. I always idolised Rick Parfit so when I first came in my first experience I was more starstruck by looking at the White Marshals in the rehearsal studio and hearing them just humming not knowing what to expect. We've developed evolved so much in the past three years that I think that that has now shown on record. It's one of these albums, I've never had it before, where I put it on, and every time I put it on, I, I know I prefer that one today. I have a new favorite track, and it, it keeps changing. I mean, I remember that just starting to write for this album with Andrew, it was the first day. I wasn't much looking forward to grinding out into it. I remember hugging Andrew at the end of the, the time we'd done these two or three songs, and realizing then that I enjoy the actual process. You forget what hard work is. Hard work, and then at the end of the day, you think, "Cool, that's good. Really rewarding." Francis was great. He was he was open to every band member putting stuff forward. As far as myself, I I just wrote a track at home. He liked it, wrote the lyrics, and and it made it to the album. Andrew and I wrote a couple on the bus. One in Ulm, uh, which is probably my favourite track, which is backing off. I think I'd upset Andrew one day somewhere, and in the lyric it sounds like it. Simon Porter, our manager, always suggests that uh, John and I write quite well together, but generally when we're not in the same room together, I'll start something and John will take it away and use it, and his interpretation is slightly different when it comes back to me. So Backbone, Liberty Lane, and Cut Me Some Slack, come from me sending John riffs or pieces, juggle it about, and that's how they came about. Cut Me Some Slack is perfect for on stage, and uh, Liberty Lane has the perfect intro, but uh, in that quote, it's, it's a melody too, which is, we've always had that pop rock country blues thing. My first few bits and pieces at home, sent them to Francis, and he rang and he just said, "You little git, you know, where did you come with, with that?" You know, so, but it was only a simple little thing. It was a mistake, the track that's, you know, I was, I was frustrated trying to come up with something else, and then out of that came the track that went onto the album, and then 
to be told you're going to be singing lead vocal on this was pretty, you know. <laughs> Having a track on the album to me is like a massive honour. Just to be etched into the, the history of status quo, it just means a lot. Some of the challenge of it since Rick's death, that a lot of people think we shouldn't go on, it was wrong that we went on and so on. And I thank them somewhat for that because it's, it's what made Rick and I carry on after that, Lancaster and Codlin not being there, that people said it wasn't possible. And all that does is make you dig in harder and want to try and prove something. Rick would be really hurt to think that they weren't giving it a chance, particularly giving Richie a chance, because he said to Richie, go out and show him what Poe can do. Even when, when Rick was uh, no longer functioning properly, that's how he felt. Him and I had always discussed the fact that whichever one of us went, that the other would carry on. It's, it's what we do. recording was um, real great fun you know we didn't get too uh, too picky about it and so as a result you um you get a moment this album sounds fresh because there's a lot of performances on there great vocal good songs performances and the playing you know what's not to, what's not to like yeah and it's a, new, a new stage song it's, it's not it, I don't think it needs to be taxing it's good you know do it tap your foot But it's a good team. I think we work together. Very different personalities in the band, but I think as a unit, those kind of different personalities, sort of dysfunctional family sort of thing, works quite well. I still feel kind of like the new boy, because, you know, you're still learning, still trying to figure out the business. Couldn't be in a better van with these guys, because total pros. They keep me, keep me grounded and don't let me get away with too much. <laughs> Over the years, this band has had to contend with more than its fair share of brickbats and criticism and stuff and uh, and we're still here it's still unmistakably status quo it unmistakably is isn't it and we don't get involved with any of that negativity it's all about the music and it is good to have the quo back Backbone is at this September. They're playing at Hyde Park in London as well on Sunday the 15th. And that is it from me for this month. Uh, don't forget, you can catch up with all of the previous episodes over at uh, Spotify, on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, all the major platforms as well. Until next month then, from me, Tim Cable. Bye-bye for now.